So hopefully you guys all had wonderful Thanksgivings. Um, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays because there's lots of food. Um, and and uh, one thing that, that always comes up around the holidays are traditions. Um, how many of you guys, like, you don't have to raise your hand, but you could probably think, how many of you guys are just, like, families which are rooted in holiday traditions? You've got things you do, and you do it religiously each year. Um, I was thinking about traditions today, and my initial thought as I'm thinking about them is I hate them. Uh, I hate traditions because I hate, like, I just hate things that I'm required uh, to do. Um, and my, my parents and my sister are super into them. Like, and I don't remember growing up in like a house that had all these Christmas traditions, but like all of a sudden, now that like all of the kids are moved away, there's like this nostalgia, like we always do this. I'm like, we've never done this. Why are we doing it now? Um, and my sister has this, this, this notion um, that she has, it's our tradition as family to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, um, which is basically like watching commercials for an hour and a half. Um, and I don't remember ever watching that growing up because it's like watching commercials for an hour and a half. Um, and, uh, and so she fights to watch this thing, and I hate it. And I hate it, one, because parades are lame, um, and I hate it, secondly, because it's on during football. Um, but as I was thinking about this, and, and as I, this issue of football started running in, it's like, it's not that I hate traditions. I just hate traditions that inconvenience me. Like, football is my tradition. And why am I angry at my sister for watching this stupid parade year after year after year? Um, it's because it runs up against football, which I always watch on Thanksgiving. And so these two traditions kind of vie for attention um, in our heart. And it's become the desire of my heart to watch football every Thanksgiving. And I love it now because there are three games on Thanksgiving, which means there's only like 20 minutes without football all Thanksgiving day, which is fantastic. Um, and maybe you could squeeze a nap in in that 20 minutes if God is good to you. Um, and I didn't like my sister's tradition because it's hard for me. And it, I, I don't have a desire for it. But I liked my tradition because it was easy for me. It was comfortable for me. It was natural for me. And that's because traditions can really oftentimes start as good, but as they progress and as time goes on, they can become both rigid and lazy ways of life. They can start as something um, which is a heartfelt action, something which starts organically and wonderfully, but it can easily morph into a lifeless, empty action. And sometimes even traditions which start around something, like it starts around Christmas or it starts around um, Thanksgiving, or maybe if you're a sportsman, you traditionally do something for March Madness or the Super Bowl. But eventually the tradition becomes bigger than the event. And the tradition is what it's known for. Like the Super Bowl, so many people watch the Super Bowl, and I bet only a third of it actually care about the game. The rest of the people go because there's the party and there's the food and it's the atmosphere. And in a sense, the Super Bowl has become larger than football. To where if you remove the football game, most people probably wouldn't even care. Um, and they would still meet. And what happens when this happens is it loses the original tent, intent of the tradition, and it becomes a movement of its own. And just in time for the holidays, in the book of Mark, um, Jesus is going to be talking about traditions. And what we're going to see, and this is kind of the framework of what we're going to be looking at in the book of Mark, is that traditional Christians recognize that they are not created by the actions of the hands, but they are made by the renewal of the heart. Traditional Christians recognize they are not made by the actions of the hands, but they are made by the renewal 
of the heart. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, we're going to look kind of in two chunks. Mark 7, 1 through 13 is going to be the action of the hands. And then what Andrea just read for us, verses 14 through 23, we'll look at the renewal of the heart. So let's pray. Lord, there is uh, a lot in our minds um, as we are in uh, hashtag dead week. Uh, and uh, there, there, there's deadlines and there's projects and there's meetings and there are classes and there's the anticipation of going home and being with family. But Lord, I pray tonight that you are gracious to us and you grant us a pause in our hearts to stop and dwell on what the Apostle Paul says is that of first importance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray um, that we don't just hear words, uh, but we hear truth and we hear life. I pray that you give us um, a foundation tonight that carries us throughout the evening to Jakers and to our Christmas party tomorrow, but also carries us through this um, month and a half break we have coming up, um, and it sustains us and leads us to worship. Lord, I pray for the non-Christians in here and the Christians in here alike. We pray that your Holy Spirit works among us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 7. Um, I think this is like the fastest we've made it through uh, a, a book so far at GCF, but the problem is, is we're just barely almost halfway through. Um, so, hopefully we'll get there in time. But we're going to get introduced to some new characters today. Uh, actually, they're not new. We're going to get introduced to some characters who we haven't seen since Mark chapter 3. And these characters are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees um, weren't technically uh, met or, or leaders of the church officially, but what they did is they guarded the church's doctrine. And they, they were people who followed the church's teachings and the, the, the teachings of the law to a T, and they also uh, maintained structure and order without actually being employed by the church, if that makes sense. So they were kind of like a movement that was birthed out of the church. And the last time we saw the Pharisees um, was in Mark 3, verse 6. And that Jesus performed a miracle, and this is how they responded. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So for roughly four chapters, we haven't seen anything about the Pharisees. Why? Because they left this area, and they were trying to find ways to destroy Jesus. They've been absent because they've been conniving with people with a way in which they could come against Jesus, bring charges against him, and ultimately they want to kill him. They don't like who he says he is. They don't like the gospel that Jesus is teaching. And with that in mind, we kind of pick up that narrative with the Pharisees in chapter 7, um, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And Mark gives us a little aside here explaining what he means by that. For the Pharisees and all Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat until they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So now we're back to the story. Um, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that's Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So here we've got the Pharisees, and we see why they've been absent. Okay? Jesus is up in the north, um, working uh, up there by the sea. And the, the Pharisees go down to Jerusalem, and they get the scribes. 
Why did they get the scribes? Because the scribes are legitimately employed um, by the Jewish church. And the scribes were scholars of the Old Testament law. And so the Pharisees went and got the scribes because they knew if anybody was going to catch Jesus doing wrong, if anybody was going to catch Jesus breaking the law, or what they said here, breaking the traditions of the elders, it would be the scribes. Because they are the ones who study it. They are the ones who maintain that legacy. And actually, in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke tells the story, it's actually the Pharisees uh, who invite Jesus over for dinner. And they didn't do this because they're like, hey, we should have Jesus over for dinner. They were baiting him. They were trying to trap Jesus, and they brought the scribes to try to do it. And at dinner, Jesus' disciples, um, they begin to eat with unwashed hands. Probably not a big deal for us. Maybe I'm just a gross, nasty person, um, and I am in a lot of ways. But I, unless I'm like changing my son's diaper or just like sticking my hands in raw sewage, I'm not very religious at washing my hands before we eat. Um, am I weird in that? How many of you guys, like, every meal you'll wash your hands before you eat? Okay, two of you. The re- three of you. So the three people are clean. The rest of us are all defiled. So that's cool. Um, but but well, it's not a huge deal for us, but it was a really big deal for them. Because you see, uh, the Jews and the Jewish tradition, um, it w- when, when it came to washing, it wasn't simply an issue of cleanliness. It was an issue of purity. It wasn't simply that you were clean and you could eat without getting sick. It was that you were morally pure and different from other people. And actually, the Old Testament does include ceremonial laws about cleansing. But those laws were always in context of the priests, the specific sect of people, not for the people at large. But here we see, and Mark tells us, in fact, he, he says, yeah, they don't wash their hands when they, or they have to wash their hands before they eat. They have to wash their hands when they come back from the market. They have to wash copper cups and dining couches and pots and bowls and many other traditions. So what Mark's saying here is that the Pharisees and the scribes have started taking things which started with a biblical genesis, a biblical origin, and they're building on them and broadening them and making these things required for all people. Why? Why did they do this? Because they thought that by following these codes, they would not only be clean, but they would be pure. Pure in an immaterial way. Pure in an innocent way. Pure in an undefiled sort of way. And and it is here where they confront Jesus. Because here Jesus comes, this man who, who is a teacher of the law. People see Jesus speak and the crowds are like, man, this guy speaks with a greater authority than the scribes. And so the scribes are like, well, let's see this authority. Well, here he is breaking a tradition of the elders. And so they confront Jesus. And they say, why are your disciples eating with unwashed hands? Breaking the tradition of the elders eating with defiled hands. And here's how Jesus responds in verses 6 through 13. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honored me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But if you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever, would have, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him 
to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So, uh, so, so here's what's going on here. The Pharisees are appealing to traditions and attempting to trap Jesus. And Jesus responds by doing two things. First thing, he calls them a name. He calls them hypocrites. Okay? That's the first thing he does. Secondly, he shows how they are acting hypocritically. He shows them a flaw in their actions. And what we saw in verses 9 through 13 is, is Jesus specifically discusses this idea called Corbin. And Corbin is kind of this thing that doesn't make sense for us because we don't have the same sort of uh, 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 civilization they had back then. But Corbin was this thing that people could do back in the day where they would take all of their belongings and they would, they would give it to, to, the, to the church. And say, I want to give all of my land and all of my possessions to the church. That's Corbin. That means given to God. And so the church would take that property and take his assets, which has monetary value, and they, they, would, they would be able to do with it what they wanted while this man was alive. But, and so in this ancient Near East culture, it was a very family-driven culture. And so the family is responsible for taking care of the family. So if, if, if I were to give my land to the church and I were to die, and my parents were still living, the church wouldn't give that land back to my parents. The church would keep it, and if, if the church decided they would give it away, they would charge my parents a great sum of money for it. And Jesus says, wait, my, Moses told you, he says, you honor your father and mother. And yet this issue of Corbin, you're not allowing people to honor their father and mother by giving your aging parents the monetary value of your assets. Your traditions are breaking God's commandments. Your traditions, which have been built for, for some weird reason, are not helpful to worshiping God. They're actually detrimental to it. In doing this, you break the commandments of God. Your laws break God's laws. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus speaks very sternly to them because Jesus isn't just like, hey guys, like in Montana, we have these really dumb laws on the book still, which I don't even know if they actually are. But like, if you bring a, a horse, this is one I always hear, if you bring a horse to school, your principal is obligated to provide shelter and hay for it. Um, just laws that are foolish. And like, if this is the kind of laws Jesus was dealing with, he'd be like, hey guys, that's just silly. But look at the language Jesus used in responding to these Pharisees. Verses 8 and 9. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said that you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then in verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. This isn't a light issue for Jesus. Jesus is saying, your traditions are opposed to God's commands. Your traditions are not just opposed. They are making void. They are ruining. They are negating God's original purposes here. You are making traditions and commandments which come from God, uh, or which are not from God, in order to feel like you are living right with God. Your commandments, which you think are right, are wrong. And in reality, these men were writing a false gospel. That's what they were doing. They wrote these codes because they thought through these codes, 
they'd be able to relate with God better. They'd be more pure. They'd be more holy. They would be made, be made more acceptable. And they had made up a lifestyle of tradition, which made them feel like they were living rightly. Don't we do this at times? I, remember, I grew up in the church, and I grew up in, uh, I went to a Christian school, and I remember thinking, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I go to school, uh, I haven't had premarital sex, I don't do all these bad things, I must be a good Christian. But looking back at my years in high school, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't do all of these superficial sins. I looked good. I went to church. I tithed. I remember my parents, we, or, or monthly, when I got my allowance, they would be like, 10% of this goes to the church. I kept the traditions. I did the tasks. I looked good. And so often our culture, even our secular culture, has this idea, if we are clean on the outside, if we do good, act good, speak good, we're a good person. We're pure. We're whole. But Jesus rebukes this mindset. Because it's not right. The actions of our hands don't make us holy. No action of your body is able to cleanse you, to purify you, or make you good. The actions of our body and the cleanliness of our hands do not make us acceptable before God. And that's because tradition often begins to be disconnected from heart. As we talked about earlier, tradition is something that can easily become a thing of its own. And the Pharisees were doing surface things. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Surface things. They lacked substance. Let me illustrate this. Last week um, was my wife and I's anniversary. Uh, and we went over to Spokane. And we went to this fancy hotel. We left our kid with my parents. And, and so the exciting thing when you have kids now is you get to sleep in past six. Um, and that was like we, the, the most exciting thing we had. And we went out and we had fancy dinner and we were alone and there was a fireplace and it was just this romantic thing. But if all I do is love my wife well on our anniversary and on Valentine's Day, am I really loving my wife well? Because I can do a lot on those two days. I can take trips, I can buy her flowers, I can make her a dinner, I can put together these really great romantic dates. But if those two days are the only days where I act in a loving way, am I really loving my wife? No. Because those actions aren't dictated by my heart, they're dictated by a calendar. It's my anniversary, I need to do this. It's Valentine's Day, I need to do this. If that is how I love my wife, I'm not really loving my wife. I'm just following the traditional days of affection as dictated by culture. But it looks good, and it looks right. This is exactly the way Jesus describes the action of the Pharisees. Look at verses 6 through 8. And he said to them, well, it's kind of weird wording, but that well um, actually means rightly. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of men and hold, or you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You see, the Pharisees thought that they would ultimately be judged pure by their external actions. Jesus came to correct that view. 
and say that you will be judged by your heart. Because in, in Jesus, Jesus created, right? Those of you who are on the GCF retreat, we, uh, Ryan Lister talked about Jesus, and he said, because Jesus created, he has creator's rights over you, okay? And so things that exist, exist because Jesus created it that way. So when Jesus speaks something true, he's not recognizing something, he's stating something. And what Jesus is stating here is your actions don't make you, your actions prove you. Your actions don't make you, your actions prove you. And think about it, what is sin? What is sin? Think about that for just three seconds. And, and while you're doing that, let me turn to James. James chapter 1. This is what James says sin is. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But Now pay attention here. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, according to James, sin is not something external from us. Sin is, according to James, sin is in our desires. And what James is doing here is he's really just expanding on Jesus' teaching that sin is in your heart. Before sin is an action issue, sin is a heart issue. You're not a dartboard. You see, when you, when you play darts, um, and, you, and you have your dartboard, and you take a dart, and you hold it next to the dartboard, and you let the dart go, what does it do? It falls to the ground. If you were to set a dartboard on a table and put a dart right next to it, what are they going to do? They're going to sit there. You see, there's nothing innately attractive about the dartboard. It just stays there. It's only when you throw the dart at the board and the dart pierces the cork or whatever the dartboard is made of and sticks to the board, only then are the two um, made one. Many people have this view of sin. Where sin is like something that comes into our lives from the outside, it pierces us externally. It's not in our nature. It's something that interjects into our nature. It's something that victimizes us, that is hostile to us, and is not our fault. We just receive sin from the world. But this isn't Jesus' view of sin. In Jesus' view of sin, we're not darts in a dartboard. We're magnets. We're not neutral. There's not that sin is, is active and piercing, and we are static and neutral. Like magnets, we're not neutral. If you put two magnets next to each other, what are they going to do? They're going to move together. They're going to come together. And it's true that sin is attractive. It is true that the Bible speaks of Satan as someone who, who, who roams around like a lion looking for someone to devour. It's, sin is a magnet. Sin moves. Sin is attractive. Sin is something that is really alive. But it's also true that our hearts desire to sin. Our hearts are drawn to sin. And while sin may move towards you, you will move towards sin. That's what your heart desires. My wife and I, um, I'm really, 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 really bad at paying attention to lyrics on songs. Like, if you were to, I've sang these worship songs we're singing dozens and dozens and hundreds maybe of times. But if that projector goes out, I'm toast. I just, I don't know the lyrics to songs. 
But my wife, who is a lyrics queen, always points out songs on the radio which talk about following your heart. And the only one I can think of is like the late 80s song, like, listen to your heart when it's calling for you. So that's what I got. Um, but there's one other song that I can't think of that Sarah always points to when it's on the radio that talks about the best thing you can do is to follow your heart. Jesus takes those songs and he says, no, the worst thing you can do is to follow your heart because your heart is what defiles you. Your heart is what is evil. Jesus defines this more in Mark 7, um, 14 through 23. And he called the people to them. And he said to them again, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the thing that comes out of the person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Another aside of Mark. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You see, Jesus gives a list of things which our heart contains, and it's not pure, and you don't want to write songs about it. And we actually see two things Jesus talks about. He talks about sinful actions, things that we do, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. These are all things we act on. But then he also talks about sinful attitudes, an envious heart, a wicked heart, a lustful heart, a prideful heart, a hateful heart. What Jesus is saying, the whole gamut of things you don't think or do without being motivated by your heart. Your heart is what defiles you. It's not your hands, Pharisees. It's not your dining couches. It's not your schedule. It's not your giving receipts which make you pure or make you holy. It's your heart which testifies to the reality of your heart. That's why the actions of the Pharisees are incomplete. They may be pure on the outside, but they're filthy on the inside. They address the surface of the issue, but not the substance. In Luke's account of this story, um, Jesus says this to the Pharisees uh, in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside also make the inside? But give as alms those things which are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So Jesus says, you can clean the outside of the body as much as you want, but God created you. Which means you can polish up the outside, and God doesn't look at you and be like, well, I can't see what's on the inside. The outside looks good. We'll give him a pass. God created you. He formed the inside of you, and he sees to the inside. 
He sees the things you so desperately want to hide. And then Jesus says, give us alms. Alms are things that are given up to the church, that are offered to the church. He says, give us alms, not the outside, not just your time, not just your tithe, not just your energy, but give your heart to God. Because it's your heart that needs to be purified. Um, I don't know how many of you guys remember all the hubbub uh, that surrounded the full body scanners when they came out in the airports. The, the thing that like you stand in and like Star Trek's around you. Um, and, and, and the issue was, and this is a huge deal. I remember traveling at this time and people were refusing to go through those. And they were refusing to go through them because when you walk through it, it revealed to the monitor the entire shape of your body. It was just this blue avatar looking like thing, but, but you saw the, the lumps and the bumps of your person on it. And I remember I loved it because no one wanted to go through it. So in a ginormous TSA line in the Miami airport, I was the only one who wanted to go through the body thing, you wobber. Um, it because, because it's like, ah, I wear clothes, I guess. Um, I don't know where that was going from. Uh, but... But there was this, this, this national hubbub about it, about how intrusive it was that some TSA person could see the outline of your body. And if people are that self-conscious about what's under their clothes, how much more self-conscious are we about what's actually in our hearts? You see, sociologists are doing studies right now um, because we, in a world of social media where FaceTime um, is becoming less and less common, there's interesting social theories that are developing because we can present ourselves as we want to be presented. The things we don't like, we can eliminate. The things that we do like that might be small, we can enlarge and make to seem like it's the defining thing of our lives. And that's because we really don't want people to see what's on the inside of our heart. And oftentimes, our greatest fear is actually having someone be able to see who we really are and to see the deepest, darkest desires of our hearts. John Lumen, our senior pastor, and I, um, we often talk about the apologies of famous people. And one that John always talks about is, is Ben Roethlisberger, who's a quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, who got accused a few years ago about, of sexually assaulting a woman. And at his press conference, he got up there um, and he said a bunch of things. But he said one thing where he says, that's not me. That's not who I am. And in saying that, it's as if Ben Roethlisberger is standing up there and he's saying, this one event was the exception to the rule of my otherwise good life. This one event was a random outbreaking of something that is otherwise pure. It's, it's as if a Pharisee here who would always wash their hands, say there's one Pharisee who 99 times in a row washed his hands before he ate, but on the hundredth time he forgot and someone caught him. He would appeal to be like, no, no, look it. This is the only time I did that. On a whole, if you average my grade, I'm an A-plus student. This is not the reality of who I am. I just made a mistake. But what Jesus is saying is it's not a simple mistake. Your actions prove your heart. You see, when Ben Roethlisberger said that, and when a Pharisee would say that, it's not an exception. You sin because you're a sinner. That's exactly who you are. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And your hearts are full of nasty. Biblically, 
What the Bible says about your heart is it's dead, it's hard, it's hostile, it's enslaved, it's deceitful, it's wicked. Merry Christmas. That's the Bible's condition of your heart. But there's a hope. And actually that hope is what we're about to break and celebrate. Christmas. You see, on Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And Jesus didn't come just to be this cute, affectionate baby. God needed a better face. And so he sent this cute kid that we would just stop and celebrate. Jesus didn't come to be a good role model or moral teacher. Jesus didn't come to be your best friend. Jesus came because your heart was desperately wicked. Was horribly enslaved. And he entered into our disease. He came into our broken world. Look at what's happened in our world in the last two weeks. Jesus lived in perfection. And, and when I went on my, hunt, or my uh, anniversary with my wife, and it was just my wife and I, it's like I could just have my wife and I in a really fancy hotel room with room service and good food for, for a really long time. The rest of the world didn't matter. That was great. God's eternal existence as a trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is so much greater than that. It's perfect. He could have had that forever, but he came into a world of Ferguson. He came into a world of German exchange students and, and people getting shot in our own town. He came into a world where racism is an issue and rape is an issue and hurt is an issue and he entered into our disease. Why? Not for his benefit, but for our benefit because he saw the deadness of our hearts. He saw the defiled bodies of his creation and he saw your life wholly desecrated and he entered into it. And he lived among the pain and the hurt and he lived perfectly. He kept the commandments. He kept the law. He kept all of it to a T. He was perfect. The only human to have ever been perfect, to have ever been without a sin. And yet he died not as a perfect lamb. He died as a sinner. He died your death. He died the death that sinners deserve to die. And Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees here, and he calls them hypocrites, he's quoting from a passage in the book of Isaiah. And in this passage, um, Isaiah is prophesying, or God is prophesying, about the future redemption of Israel. And Israel was this people who he had promised to restore. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. And yet God's promising this redemption, but he keeps talking about your sin. I'm going to heal you, but your sin is so great. I'm going to come back. You know that, but you still keep sinning. And so he keeps oscillating between redemption and sin, future hope, current struggle. But look at the full prophecy that Jesus is referring to in Isaiah chapter 29. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their, heart, their, their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So that's what Jesus quoted. But look at, look at what he left out. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of the wise man shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. You see, the solution... To sinful, 
dead hearts is wonderful things. God doing wonder upon wonder, and Jesus is that wonderful thing. That's why Jesus left it out. It's not like he forgot it. Jesus said, your hearts are hard, your lips move a lot. Your hands move a lot. You stand on the street corners and talk about how much you're tithing and you use these elegant prayers, but you are far from me. But I am the wonderful thing. I am the therefore. I am the action of God to bridge your deadness of heart. On our own, we are sinful. We are evil. We are filled with sexual immorality and hatred. But for those who believe in Jesus and are covered by this wonder-working God, something different happens to us. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Why is Jesus rebuking the Pharisees? Is it because he just likes to be mean? Because he likes to keep rules? No, he's rebuking the Pharisees because he's revealing to them their deadness and their coming death. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. That means to be made clean. You were justified. That means to be made right. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of God. You see, Jesus didn't come as a legalist and fulfill the commandments and be like, there, I did it, you need to do it. Jesus came and rather than just pointing to the commands and telling us to keep it, he pointed to our hearts and says, your heart has been fixed. Now you can live rightly. Your sin has been removed. Now you can be made anew. Jesus fixed the heart. Jesus addressed the root of the issue. And for those of you in here who are not saved by Jesus, the reality is, is Paul is writing to you when he says, do not be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Your hearts are dead. And really deep in your heart, you know it, don't you? Deep in your heart, you know the things you think of, you know the feelings you have. And you know that there are things that dwell in here that you would rather die than let anyone else see. And ultimately, that heart will lead you to hell. You can hide it. You can stash it away. You can live a perfect life by physical standards. You could be as washed, as white as you think you need to be pure. But that heart will kill you. But Jesus changes that heart. And in that change, we become Christians through him. And you Christians, you have a new heart. It's not a refurbished heart. It's not when your good iPhone breaks, Apple will send you a refurbished one. God gives you a fully new heart. He gives you Christ's heart. That means that you are no longer defined by the sin of your heart. You're defined by the perfection of Christ's heart. You sin for sure. I look at that list that Paul just listed off, and I'm like, that's me. I do some of that. But the difference is, is that is not my new heart. 
That is not what Christ has enabled me to be. Your heart is not the heart of a sinner. Your heart is the heart of Christ. And you are fully able for the first time in your life not to sin. You're fully able to look at those impulses and say, no, why? Because we have a different desire and we have a different passion and you know that you're not saved by the external actions of church attendance and Bible reading and good deeds or generosity. You know you're saved because Jesus died for your sins and he took your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. You see, in Deuteronomy and one of the greatest commandments that's repeated in the New Testament, even, God says to his people, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But did you see that progression? Jesus doesn't say love your neighbor as yourself with all your strength, mind, soul, and heart. He starts with the heart. Because it's only when Jesus has changed your heart does the action of loving your neighbor in an external way really become Christian? Does it really become an action of a redeemed heart? You see, traditional Christians recognize they're not created by the actions of their hands, but they're made new by the renewal of their hearts. That's what Jesus came to do. And here's what I want to close with. We're about to dismiss for the semester, and at the university, we have this beautifully long winter break. And over that break, many of you um, will, will leave, and you'll go home, and you'll be away from us. And, and the traditions that you've started doing here will be gone. And I use that term rightly, because tradition isn't bad. Traditions aren't bad. In fact, in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul commends the church for following good traditions gospel-centered traditions. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul encourages the church to stand firm and hold fast to traditions. Traditions aren't the problem. Sinful hearts are the problem. And when traditions are taken away from the gospel, that's an issue. But when traditions are here to help us with the gospel, that's good. And many of you have, have established a tradition of, of coming to GCF on Thursdays and church on Sundays and community groups on Tuesdays and maybe doing one-to-one -one and meeting with other people in this group. And when you go home, those good systems and traditions will be stripped away. You'll be back around your old friends and your old family and your own pattern of life. And you'll be around people who might not realize the change and growth you've experienced this semester. They'll be around people who, might not, who just might not realize it, but also are hostile to it. People who don't like this gospel you've grown into, people who don't like this Jesus who you see as your Savior. But praise God, we're not saved because of our work schedules. We're not saved because of our social schedules that allow us to come to these events. We're saved by Christ, and you can't take Christ out of our hearts. And here are three things I want you to do this break that will help you stay true to the work of Christ and help you love the gospel throughout this, and not to drift back into empty, vain traditions. The first is go to church. Some of you have established churches you've been to uh, back home, and that's great. Get plugged in with that. Some of you don't have churches. We want to help you with that. Talk to me or Noah or, or some of the other leaders, and we want to help you find a church back home. And, and I don't want you to think that going to church saves you, but God has promised in his word that going to church we're going to a place where God specially and uniquely works on our hearts. Going to church isn't about going to church. Going to church is about having your heart encounter Jesus and being reminded of what Christ has done 
in your lives. Secondly, read your Bible. This can be completely comfortable for some of us and completely overwhelming for others. Um, but, if, but if this is hard for you, talk to me or talk to another leader. I want to get you a Bible reading plan so it's not you don't have this huge book and you're like, I don't know how to read this, where to read this, or how to start. We want to help you with that. Um, and, and actually a great place, because you guys have been hearing sermons from it, start in the book of Mark. Read through Mark over it. Um, and that could be a helpful place. Or, or go to Acts. Um, or, or even you could find something, another sermon series we've preached through at church and start reading through that. So when you have a question on a text, you can listen to a sermon or look at the notes on it. Um, maybe you want to find somebody in here uh, who you've grown to know over the semester and be like, hey, once, once a month or once every other week, can we get together and Skype or have a phone call or something and discuss what it is we're going over um, and how it's reminding us of Christ? Go to church, read your Bible. But thirdly and most importantly... And I say most importantly, and that's an understatement, of chief, of ultimate, of superlative importance, pray that God continues to protect your heart from the traditions of man by continually revealing to you the wonder of Christ. You see, God's not trying to sell us on beats. God's not trying to make something unattractive look attractive. Jesus is the most attractive and most affectionate thing we could ever know. We just have indistinct or unclear views of him. So pray that God will be gracious to you this semester and grant you a clearer picture of Jesus so that in that you can say, my heart is satisfied in Christ. A prayer we're going to see um, when we come back in the book of Mark. So, uh, a man whose daughter is dying, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. May that be your prayer this break. Pray that God is merciful to your heart and grants you a greater picture of Christ this winter break. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, you reveal to us in our hearts in subtle ways where we, like the Pharisees, are creating false gospels. We're creating false ideologies and patterns which we think are saving us or making us more like Christ, but in reality um, is something that is man-powered, man-centric, and detrimental to our salvation. And Lord, I pray you grant us a clear picture of Christ. I pray we grow through our absence with each other. As Paul prays for his church in the book of Philippians, as you did in my presence, so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in, in you, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, make us full in our hearts for you. Transform our dirty lives from the inside out. Make us new through the work of Christ, and make us Christ-like in our actions. We love you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you.